Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Monday, the 25th of September. It's the start of the final trading week of September and the last business week of the third quarter. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the U.S. Treasury Department on Friday said it was formally launching two new U.S.-China working groups on economic and financial issues aimed at providing a regular policy communications forum between the world's two largest economies. In a statement, the U.S. Treasury said the two groups would meet on a regular cadence and report to U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Chinese Vice Premier He Feng. Japan's central bank made no changes to its benchmark lending rate and yield curve control policy following its latest monetary policy meeting on Friday. The central bank kept rates at minus 0.1% and maintained the 10-year Japanese government bond yield around zero with a cap of 1% as it noted a moderate recovery in the economy. The US government is heading for a shutdown from next weekend as lawmakers look increasingly unlikely to strike a budget deal in the face of hard-right Republican demands for deep cuts in federal spending. Legislators have just one week to come up with a spending plan that can make it through both chambers of commerce. If no agreement is reached by midnight next Sunday, federal agencies have to stop all non-essential work and will not send paychecks as long as the shutdown lasts. A protracted shutdown could have ripple effects across the US economy, denting business and consumer confidence when there are already fears that a recession is coming. America's United Auto Workers Union is expanding its strike against General Motors and Stellantis while sparing Ford, which it said had significantly improved its offer to workers from further action. This month's strike is the first in the union's history to target all three car makers, known as the Big Three, at once. The dispute threatens to raise car prices and lead to serious disruption for an industry that accounts for about 3% of the US economy. Those headlines and more will be analysed by our guests this morning, Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Tim Huxley, Chairman of Mandarin Shipping. Providing a view on mainland China will be China specialist and author Mark O'Neill. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, or take a look at my Facebook page, Peter Lewis Money Talk. And on X, formerly Twitter, and still known as Twitter by me, I'm at MoneyTalkR3. <laughs> U.S. stocks were choppy on Friday, with the major indices closing out the week at their lows. Friday's slide marked the fourth straight day of losses for the three major indices. The S&P 500 shed 0.2% to 4,320. All 11 S&P 500 sectors ended the week lower. The Dow slid 107 points, or 0.3%, to close at 33,964. And the Nasdaq Composite slipped 0.1% to 13,212. The S&P 500 dropped 2.9% last week, and the technology-heavy Nasdaq Composites fell 3.6% over the five sessions. That marked the third straight week negative week and worst weekly performance since March for both indices. The blue chip Dow slid 1.9% on the week, and the VIX jumped back above 17 last week. On Friday, the US dollar index spiked to a six-month high of 105.78. For the week, the dollar was up 0.2%, its 10th weekly gain in a row, as investors prepared for a prolonged period of high interest rates. The currency hit its highest levels against the euro, the pound and the yen since at least March. 
The Japanese yen fell half a percent against the US dollar, trading close to a 10-month low at 148.3. The PBOC raised the Chinese yuan central parity rate by one pip to 7.1729 per US dollar Friday. That's 1,300 pips stronger than market expectations. The central bank has moved the fixing prices by single digits since Tuesday. Offshore yuan strengthened 0.2% back to the 7.30 mark. Hong Kong stocks reversed early losses and surged in the afternoon session, leading gains in Asia, while mainland Chinese markets also advanced. The Hang Seng Index closed 402 points higher, or 2.3%, at 18,057. That's helped cut its losses for the week to 0.7%. On the mainland, the CSI 300 closed 1.8% higher at 3,739 and rebounding off its 10-month low. Foreign investors bought 7.5 billion yuan, that's about 1 billion US dollars, of onshore listed stocks on Friday, the most in seven weeks. They dumped, though, about 15 billion US dollars of A shares in the preceding six weeks. And this morning, the Hang Seng Index is projected to open about 110 points lower, that's around 0.6%. Futures markets suggesting it's going to start the day around 17,950. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Time to welcome our Monday morning guests. And as always, at the beginning of the week, we have our regular commentator, Alex Wong, director of Alex KY Wong Asset Management. Morning, Alex. Hi, morning, Peter. And also joining us, Tim Huxley, chairman of Mandarin Shipping. Welcome back, Tim. Thanks very much, Peter. Great to be here. Now, the U.S. Treasury Department on Friday said it was formally launching two U.S.-China working groups on economic and financial issues aimed at providing a regular policy communications from between the world's two largest economies. In a statement, the Treasury said the two groups would meet on a regular cadence and report to U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Chinese Vice Premier He Feng. China's Ministry of Finance will be the Treasury's counterparts for the economic working group while the People's Bank of China will be its counterpart for the financial working group. So the two sides ramping up communications at least. I'm interested in getting your perspectives both, first of all, from an investment perspective as to whether uh, this uh, changes the outlook at all, um, and also from a business perspective. Alex, what do you think? I think from an investment perspective, the uh, impact would be minimal right now because we have seen uh, too many times uh, that they are trying to fix something. But I think the overall... Uh, sentiment towards uh, the U.S.-China relationship is still skeptical. So I think uh, people probably may not take it too seriously. I think they want to see results and they want to see something more concrete before they jump in uh, into China stocks. And U.S. stocks actually are, are strong and people probably are looking at other, other factors rather than the U.S.-China relationships. But uh, these things I think would more... Um, affect the uh, performance in China. Um, so I think uh, right now people are still quite cautious towards China. So that would not help too much. Yeah, I think Alex, I agree with you. Uh, it's uh, the old Winston Churchill quote, George Orr is better than war war. And any level of dialogue is better than a standoff. Uh, but I don't think that anybody's sort of uh, banking on this being a complete turnaround and a defrosting of uh, of China-US trade relations. Do you, from a business point of view, and you know, you run a big company here in Hong Kong, are you impacted by the fact that uh, the two sides are having such a frosty relationship and have been barely talking up to now? 
yeah, certainly it's, it has had an impact. And I think it's uh, uh, quite important to, to realize that uh, uh, China is exporting uh, more now to the developed world than it was previously exporting to China, to the US, Europe and Japan combined. Mm. So you know, trade has definitely suffered. And all this talk about decoupling and relocating businesses elsewhere, I mean, that's just one part of it. But uh, certainly anything that is going to uh, promote smoother relations with, with the two parties has got to be a help. But I, I'm not expecting any miracles out of this, certainly in the short to medium term. Mm, I suppose the problem is there's still things like the sanctions on semiconductors, high-tech equipment. They're all still in place. We've even got the Donald Trump sanctions still in still in place. So when you say, Alex, you know, we see, need to see more action, maybe a relaxation of those measures, would that change the, the perspective at all? I don't think so. I think uh, because we are approaching the election year, so if any relaxation actually may, 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 may have some kickback in, in the U.S. towards uh, the current government, so I think that they probably would put, some, uh, put things on hold. So what's the point of these talks, other than just showing that, you know, we, we can fly over to Beijing and meet on a regular basis? Is there a point to these talks at all? I would have thought so. Uh, I mean, one would hope that there is a point to them. But uh, I, uh, like I said, I don't actually expect much to come out of it. But uh, I think the perception that you have to be seen to be trying to be uh, amenable and uh, to trying to, to bridge this gap but uh, as Alex says I mean it's the election year coming up so is everything just sort of focused on next November uh, and what is actually going to get people elected uh, you know, you've seen um, this last week or so uh, Biden uh, siding with the auto workers and you've got these strikes and everything I mean, there's so many other problems uh, that the US economy has to face as, as well as the other economies around the world I mean you've seen this big issue in Europe now about uh, uh, electric cars being dumped there by China. And the EU is doing just as much as, as the states in trying to actually bridge this huge gap well, on their trade. Valdis Dambrovskis, the European Union Trade Commissioner, is in Beijing at the moment, or is in China anyway, and is kicked off a four-day trip. He said the European Union has a very imbalanced trade relationship with China. Its trade deficit is about 426 billion US dollars. I suppose what the EU wants is China to buy more European goods. But does EU manufacture stuff that China wants to buy? I mean, at the end of the day, this is all down to the basics of uh, supply and demand. And if, uh, you know, the EU is making stuff that uh, is either too expensive or isn't wanted in China, then uh, that imbalance is going to remain. But it says it does, but it's just that there's so many uh, barriers. Uh, they said, uh, I think it was the EU ambassador uh, to China, he said there are a thousand barriers to market access uh, to, to EU products and, and goods in China. Do you think that's true? Well, I mean, anybody who's tried to export anything to the EU knows that's a bit rich coming, coming <laughs> saying there aren't, there, are too, there, aren't, there are too many barriers to get in. Uh, I, I, again, I think... It's, it's a lot of talk, and will it actually change things? I don't know. What do you think, Alex? I mean, this is obviously the European Union. It says there are more issues arising now, as well as things like, uh, you know, restrictions on companies exporting. There's all sorts of other things now, like uh, a general clampdown on private businesses, uncertain business environments. It's got a long list of grievances. 
No, I, I think uh, the problem is that uh, EU products are too expensive and China brands actually are rising right now. Because if you look at the vehicle markets, actually China brands are very competitive right now. So there's no point to buying European cars in China. So probably uh, they can do is uh, like Volkswagen, they get uh, involved in those uh, JV with a uh, Chinese brand. So I think uh, probably that would be the way out. Uh, and also Chinese actually are buying less luxurious product right now. So I think uh, that probably is another problem Europe is facing. There's not about restrictions. There's <coughs> about the um, rising competitors of China and also um, they are spending less on the uh, luxurious uh, things right now. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, people are are saving more. I mean, there's uh, yeah, interest rates have risen. Uh, the, the youth unemployment. So a lot of families have got kids coming out of university and they're staying at home and they've got to continue to prop them up. So you know, people are tightening their belts, and that, that's the theme throughout this year. Uh, really, since the COVID restrictions were relaxed, people have not gone out and started spending again. But there, is it is the reason why uh, China's products are so cheap? Is because they're getting subsidies from the government, as the as the EU alleges? Not necessarily. I mean, they're competitive. Uh, you know, the productivity in factories or certainly what I see in, in places like shipyards and everything, it is that much higher uh, in, than it is uh, elsewhere in the West. And that is, that's been the reason, one of the reasons for China's phenomenal growth over the last 20 years. And, uh, and that, that continues to be the case. But it's not just the governments, is it? It's not just the EU Commission and, and European governments. It's businesses themselves in China uh, urging authorities to try and improve the regulatory environment to ensure there's access uh, to things like economic data. They're also complaining about further overcapacity now in other sectors as well, which they say is picking up uh, in many industries. So, I mean, this this uh, European uh, Chamber of Commerce report that came out last week was, was quite gloomy on, for, for, the uh, for the perspective of European companies in uh, China. So it does seem that there must be some legitimate complaints here, surely. Well, I think, uh, uh, like I've said, uh, probably uh, to solve the overcapacity problem is that uh, European companies are get into um, some JVs or buying some stakes into uh, Chinese companies, like uh, Volkswagen uh, buying some stakes in uh, Xiaopang. So mm -hmm. I think uh, that probably would be the way out. So that solves the overcapacity uh, problem and also um, uh, would help uh, some um, uh, less well-run Chinese brands to, uh, to, to improve. So probably that would be the way out to improve the efficiencies. But what's going to win votes in Europe or the states is obviously if there are more jobs being created and everything, and joint ventures in China are obviously not going to help uh, a car right. worker in, uh, in Detroit. Oh, right, that's, that's very true. I, but I think uh, uh, that, that's the, the more efficient rate to, 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 to go. But uh, of course, that is not helping the employment situation in Europe or in, US, in the U.S. Do you, Tim, from, from a business perspective, do you sort of, when you look at things like the American Chamber of Commerce, it's showing that uh, optimism over China has dropped to um, a record low. They also say that China's position as the top choice for investment by respondents uh, fell to 17%. That's down from 27% in 2021. That's also a record low. These, these businesses, you know, American businesses, European businesses are really being quite gloomy. Do, do you feel the same way about China or are you looking at it differently? Well, I still believe that China is going to be the driver of the world economy. And without uh, the 
things like the Chinese steel industry, that, that will still remain the dominant player. Uh, but they're, they're, we've still got the hangover from the supply chain disruptions we had because of COVID. And mm. so there is still this uh, uh, relocating manufacturing outside of China because people don't want, want to be so dependent on that single uh, source of manufacturing. But what people often forget is just how difficult it is uh, to change your supply chains and your location of manufacturing. I mean, these are all well embedded uh, manufacturing bases in China that have grown up over the last two decades. And to train people and to relocate manufacturing to other countries, and yeah, huge strides have been made in places like Vietnam and elsewhere in Southeast mm. Asia, but it is still very difficult to change the infrastructure of manufacturing to a, a new country. And so, I think yeah, a lot of this talk is in the hope that, okay, it'll make it easier. But I don't see a wholesale flight of businesses out of China who are well established in manufacturing there. I suppose part of the problem is that the economy is is in the doldrums as well, which tends to make people gloomy um, sort of anyway, but uh, and, and then sort of attribute the, the problems to other things as well. They, they throw everything into the mix. But nevertheless, I mean, if you look at um, the, the, the policy, that people are getting more and more perplexed about what exactly is economic policy on the mainland. What is it trying to do? Um, a lot of talk about supporting the economy, but when it comes to action... Um, not an awful lot. We saw again on Friday, China kept its benchmark loan rates unchanged uh, for September, the five, one-year, five-year loan prime rates uh, unchanged. Do, do you think, Alex, people are really getting rather confused about what is the economic message that's coming out of Beijing? I think uh, the, the message is that they want to be very prudent in uh, pumping money. So I think uh, that's why they are not uh, doing things like the U.S. doing in, in when they are in crisis. They, they're U.S. are doing a lot of QEs. In China, that is probably not the case. So I think uh, they are trying to um, to absorb the, uh, the, 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 the excess uh, in a very painful and, and, lo and, 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 and a very um, um, top consumer rate, I think. So uh, we are in a slow decline, and probably, uh, hopefully, we would uh, have, uh, um, get out of the excess uh, and, and then back into normal. But I think uh, the problem is that we have a busted uh, property market in China, and that is uh, hurting everything. I think uh, that probably will take a very long time. And I think uh, China probably uh, may not be able to, to do um, very excessive monetary policies. So I think uh, people probably would accept that fact uh, right now. And it's also got an eye on the yuan as well, I suppose. It doesn't want to cut rates and see the yuan decline when it's putting in so much effort to try and support it. I think they would uh, manage the decline. So uh, the decline is uh, is still in pace, but uh, the the weight of the decline probably would be very slow. Actually, if you look at this year, uh, one is not the worst performing currencies. If you compare it with other major currencies, actually, this is not doing too much. But uh, I think in the long term, one is still going lower. Mm. But it's only go really going to get low against the dollar, isn't it? If you look at it against other currencies, it's actually held its value pretty well. So this is more a dollar strength story than the yuan being particularly weak. Yeah, right. So uh, they, are, they, are, they are successful in managing the expectations right now. I think uh, we are not seeing things like Argentina in China. So uh, we are <laughs> not seeing currencies uh, depression like that, that, that type. Mm. It, it is a bit of a conundrum, though, isn't it, Tim? That um, what exactly? Where's the economic growth going to come from? What are the the moves that Beijing is going to do to try and stimulate the economic growth? 
Well, I th- you're absolutely right. I mean, and this is this is a worldwide problem. Uh, you know, the major markets that China was exporting to, like uh, the US and Europe, I mean, they're they're in a in a recession as well in many respects, and so. Uh, there isn't that export market, and then if you haven't got been able to stimulate that domestic demand, then there is there is this problem. Now, I think that the big difference, of course, is that in the U.S. and Europe, I mean, what is everybody focused on? What are the what are the policymakers? What are they focused on? Well, they're focused on the next election cycle, whereas at least China can actually take a long term view. And so, let's just hope that okay, with the Everything is dominated by the property market, uh, it would seem. And we've clearly got a long way to go before that is all resolved. But the fundamentals are that actually they'll be looking at that long-term outlook of of stimulating the economy again. And there is so much, I mean, in other areas like tech and everything like that, where China is really getting uh, to a... uh, yeah, a leadership position. I mean, the it's it's another evolution in its economic cycle. I mean, the old metal bashing industries they will begin to decline, mm-hmm. uh, and, and where they will move to, I don't know. I mean, will suddenly Africa become the world's largest steel producer and shipbuilder? I doubt it. Uh, but th- yeah, this is an evolutionary phase in 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 the global economy, not just the Chinese economy. Mm. But. It- even if you take that long-term view, some of the moves are, are quite hard to explain, aren't they? Like the disappearance of prominent entrepreneurs. You've got this new espionage law now, which makes it hard to do um, business and know whether or not you can have data and access to data. You've got capital and loans being shifted from private enterprises to state-owned enterprises. You've got the disappearance of government officials without sort of explanation. All these things are, are hard to explain to how are they going to help these long-term sort of fundamental shifts that, that you, you talk about, Tim. Yeah, you're right. I mean, things like that, they are incredibly difficult to explain and incredibly difficult to explain to overseas investors who have this naturally, uh, you know, there's been ingrained in their minds, this negative negative view. Uh, and and you know, I cannot explain uh, half of these uh, issues that you've just raised. Uh, but you know, that, that, that has always been one of the... Uh, uh, fraught aspects of of dealing uh, in China, and you, you wind it back to anybody who's been actually doing business in China since uh, you know, over the last thirty, forty years. There were always uh, speed bumps along the way. Uh, I, I mean, you know, there are many things that have improved enormously in China. I mean, the level of corruption is much reduced, uh, and you know the. A lot, a lot of the elements that made doing business in China so difficult so many years ago. Uh, and you know, one, one has to look at, OK, where were we uh, a, f- you know, a couple of decades ago and where are we now? Yes, it's difficult, but the whole world is a very different place. We don't know where China stands on a lot of, a lot of issues. So it's going to be, um, it, is, it is not going to be an easy period over the, mm. over the foreseeable future. But I still actually long term have great confidence in the growth in in Southeast Asia. But if you look back over the decades, the one thing that was always sort of prominent uh, in the government dealings with with business was it, it had a fairly pragmatic approach didn't it in the end of the day it wanted to encourage sort of businesses during this period of reform and sort of opening up that that pragmatic approach seems to have come to a screeching sort of halt under the under the current governance i mean that's that's one of the things i think that worries investors worries businesses isn't it 
I think that that is because uh, uh, companies like Alibaba and Tencent becomes more p too powerful, and they are controlling the data, and so I think uh, that is uh, threatening the authority of the governments. So I think that is the the major change that that induces the change in policies, because uh, in the past, if you look at those uh, consumer giants, they are not um, uh, too much a threat uh, to the government. But uh, with those uh, tech giants, actually, they are controlling uh, basically everything so, uh, of everybody's everyday life. So I think uh, that's why uh, the government changed their stance. Mm. It's sort of the, the, the problem is, on the one hand, if you say you want a, a better private economy, I mean, that's the, the part of the economy that employs the most amount of people, contributes to, to GDP overall. You want that to thrive. But then at the same time, um, you want to reduce the power of the private sector and you don't want the companies to get too big. The sort of the two don't really go together, do they? Yeah, that's why we are seeing the, the, the huge bear market in China right now because uh, you think uh, the government don't want them to be too, too powerful. So I think uh, that's why people are very cautious towards uh, those companies, and that's why we are seeing a huge devaluations in Chinese stocks. Do you think, Tim, though, that maybe something has changed here, that the sort of, you know, that sort of that opening up period where you know, China wanted more companies to come in, more foreign businesses to come in, were, you know, wanted private businesses. Has that come to an end? Well, I think uh, I agree with Alex of uh, the rise of these huge Chinese companies like Tencent and Alibaba, and now we're seeing it with the motor industry, uh, that, you know, basically China, it's, it's moved on. It doesn't actually need that uh, Western uh, technology uh, and uh, the Western companies going into China are no longer the junior partner. Uh, they're going in and these are well-established businesses, what's more, with great products in many cases. And uh, so I think that this uh, uh, you know, difference between uh, foreign companies and, and Chinese companies, it's, it's moved on so much from when original people like Volkswagen, etc. were setting up their original joint venture. And, uh, yeah, that's not a bad thing. This is, we're really just going through a period of evolution here rather than some uh, seismic shift that we all need to really worry about from a political angle. Mm. But then even if you put aside, you know, attitudes to foreign companies, I mean, even local people are getting caught up now in, the, in these increasing restrictions. I mean, the government's going to ban any form now of um, private tutoring. You, you can't go out and get a teacher to come and teach your kids, um, you know, which is a huge part of how the Chinese education system works. I mean, these, these things are, are sort of, you know, do they worry you, Alex, when you hear about things like this? Of course, I think uh, the education sector is, uh, is uh, something as of a shock uh, to us, actually. And you can see the devaluation of that uh, sector stocks uh, two years ago. So I think uh, that is something, of course, people don't want. And, and, and that's really strange, actually, to us. And, and I think uh, this is very difficult to explain. Okay, well, let's move on to Hong Kong. The Hong Kong Monetary Authority maintained its base rate at five and three quarter percent at the end of last week. Uh, that comes as the domestic economy expanded at just a so, uh, just one and a half percent year on year in the uh, the second quarter. Um, what are your thoughts about the, where we are in in Hong Kong at the moment, Alex? Of course, we are still in a very difficult situation. Right now, uh, because of the uh, maybe the depreciation and 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 the and the strong U.S. dollar, actually people are spending more in China right now. Mm. So uh, that is uh, really hurting the the prospect of uh, local retail. Mm. And then we have a very 
quiet stock market right now. So uh, that is also hurting the uh, financial sector as well. And the property market actually is in 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 a downtrend right now as well. So probably uh, the the three pillars in Hong Kong is all, all under challenge right now. So I think uh, that is uh, quite gloomy here. The three pillars being the stock market, the property market, and the retail and the retail market, and the retail markets. Tim, your thoughts? Yeah, it's in many ways. um, You know, we've got a flood of uh, uh, visitors coming over from uh, the mainland, uh, but unfortunately, they're they're not actually putting much money into the economy. I mean, a lot of them are coming over, you know, taking a few selfies, having a Starbucks, (laughs) then going back. They're what I call discount tourists, indeed. And and then, of course, at the weekends, you've got lots and lots of people from Hong Kong going over to Shenzhen to do their (laughs) shopping and uh, and go out for dinner. So we we have not got uh, our tourist uh, industry has really not made uh, the inroads it it needs to have post pandemic. And if you look at the long haul uh, high end business travellers, they are not fully back yet there's some really encouraging signs for instance we had uh, the jewelry fair came back to hong kong last week and you know and it was oversubscribed and that's something that we pulled back we lost that to singapore uh, and the uh, convention center and asia world expo <coughs> i mean they're pretty much fully booked for next year so i think we're going to get these events coming back because that's the kind of uh, tourism that actually brings in a lot of revenue to the local economy so i think there's quite a positive outlook there and you talk to people who uh were coming to these exhibitions when they were being held in hong kong pre-covid and the exhibitions moved to dubai and singapore but everybody actually wants to come back to hong kong because it's an easier place to do business so we've really every single person and this is not just government officials wandering around the world saying hong kong's wonderful it's all down to us each and every one of us as an individual to promote this city that it is still a great place to do business and a great place to visit I mean, and those high-end tourists, they're the ones who put the money into the economy. And it's not just saying uh, that it's them, but when you, as a, as, a, as a citizen of Hong Kong, I mean, if you've got uh, somebody coming in from overseas, then, you know, you'll get together with a couple of other colleagues and maybe a few friends, and you go out and you, help, you book a table for eight in a restaurant. So then you've got the locals spending the money as well. And that's really why we're going to have this drive. You need to get people back out there and uh, spending money in Hong Kong like it used to be. And that was very much uh, the business travellers, the Western travellers coming in. And, you know, we've got the best hotels in the world here. I mean, you know, you saw at the weekend there were articles about these, the uber luxury hotels opening in London. Uh, Well, the amazing thing is three of those, over a billion pounds being spent on hotels, it's from Hong Kong brands, Mm -hmm. Mandarin Oriental, Rosewood, Peninsula, all opening there. So we've got the assets here and we've just got to go out and uh, really try and encourage people to come back. I mean, obviously, the high cost of airfares at the moment is, is putting a lot of people coming off Hong, coming to Hong Kong. But and as high for, cost of hotel rooms as well, when you compare well, them to, say, Shenzhen, uh, you know. The, yeah, I know, but I mean, there's a big difference high. between a luxury hotel in Shenzhen and uh, a luxury hotel in Hong Kong. And, uh, uh, and yeah, I think that the airfares, that will probably become more manageable as more capacity comes on stream. Uh, we get back to what we were pre-COVID, then hopefully those airfares will become more reasonable. But uh, 
Yeah, we've got to go out, and each and every one of us has got to go out and market Hong Kong. So we've got an important period coming up because it's the Golden Week holiday uh, coming up. Normally we would get hundreds of thousands of tourists coming from the mainland to to Hong Kong. Do you think we're going to see some of those big spenders come back now? Are things uh, looking more attractive for the mainland tourists or have they become more used to maybe travelling around the mainland instead or, or going to places like Japan and elsewhere and Thailand? I think uh, you'll see a lot. Uh, there's a lot of travel to, to Southeast Asia. And, and, of course, during COVID and restrictions, there's a lot of travel within China. So I don't think we're going to have a surge. It's not going to be like it used to be of this, uh, I wouldn't call it an invasion, but uh, this sort of tsunami of people coming over during Golden Week. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I hope there will be an upturn. Uh, but, uh, as I say, it's... Um, it's really the, the tourists from longer haul that will actually probably be putting the big bucks into the Hong Kong economy. Okay. Alex, what do you make of the Night Vibes uh, Hong Kong campaign to try and get boost the evening economy, get people to spend after 9.30pm, as Paul Chan says? He says last orders now seem to be 9pm when he launched this last week. What's this going to do? Do you think it's going to work? I think uh, it's still quite difficult to work because people are changing their habits after the COVID uh, yeah. uh, lifetime. So I think uh, that's a little bit difficult. And I think uh, the government needs to do more PR works because in the in the media, actually, right now, we are focusing on the price of dim sum. Uh, <laughs> we, are, we are talking about $20 for, for sale mai. So uh, that is uh, the talking points in the media right now. So I think uh, we need to do something else, uh, more things on promotion right now. Because uh, if you are not doing enough PR works, actually, uh, this is uh, not uh, too useful. I think you're right. I mean, people's habits going out habits have changed, haven't they? Because um, you get used to, because of the pandemic, where you were forced to go out and eat earlier. That's sort of continued. I mean, I I eat earlier now. I don't eat at eight or nine o'clock. You know, I've had dinner by sort of 6pm and and gone home if I I go out somewhere. Presumably, that's what people are doing. And they've sort of got used to this idea of, of dining earlier, going out earlier. And they're back home by well before nine o'clock and as a result you go to a restaurant now after nine o'clock it's hard to order something they're putting up the breakfast menus for the next day yeah i think another thing is uh, we are having less young people to spend in the night actually if you look around in the restaurant that i go i i i i think mm. um more than 90% people paying actually are over 50s. <laughs> so probably, <laughs> I'm over 50 as well, so probably <laughs> that the place I go is uh, for those kind of people. So the three of us should go out somewhere. Too. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you know people are going, uh, going you, you're going out earlier and having dinner earlier, maybe I am, but I think that's maybe because we're getting older. Maybe. I mean, yeah, Maybe. My, I'm sorry, my Lang Kwai Fong party days but are But I'm not old enough to, to not go out anymore. <laughs> no, no. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's difficult. Um, my, my personal view is, I mean, you know, dim sum vouchers and drinks <laughs> off. I mean, it's, they, they're just, they're, it's just a drop in the ocean. I mean, yeah. you've got to, I totally agree with Alex, we've just got to have a better, more structured, more attractive promotional campaign you look back at some of the adverts that the hong kong tourist authority ran in the mid 90s uh, you know there's that wonderful advert with great shots of hong kong mm. a tina turner track simply the best and you just felt i want to go to hong kong uh but you don't come to hong kong because you're going to get a dim sum voucher you don't come to hong kong because <laughs> of a dim sum voucher or uh, a lot of really not very well known uh 
Cantonese star <laughs> on an advert running around saying how wonderful Hong Kong is. I mean, you've got to really sell this city for all of the great attributes that it has. And I, I really hope that we can, uh, we can all pull together and do that. And you've got to sell it internationally as well, haven't you? Totally. And this campaign is totally focused on locals, locals all in which Chinese. Is I mean, because what you find is that if you get somebody from overseas and i mean our perception overseas people i mean you know you talk to people in the states and uh, when they kind of come and visit here and they'll 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 have friends saying oh gosh are you going to hong kong is it safe <coughs> i mean we've got a real image problem here and but once you actually get people on the ground here from overseas i mean i've had people come out for the first time since covid and they said hey this is still such a great place mm-hmm. and so you've got to get them out here get them back and one of our problems is that uh you know in the western media for instance it's virtually impossible to get a positive story about hong kong Mm -hmm. uh published and that's really what we've got to focus on okay now let's turn our attention to the markets alex we we had a bit of a rebound didn't we in local markets on friday but we we launched the alex index a week or so ago this was your recommendation you said a a basket of quality uh hong kong blue chips will be what will outperform so we've created this index on your recommendation has one share of hsbc in it one share of china mobile five shares of cnooc so it's a an equally weighted basket i set it to be 100 on friday the 15th of September. It's up 0.7% last week. The Hang Seng Index down 0.7%. So you're, you're still sort of optimistic. I mean, a good first start, isn't it, for, for the index, for the Alex Index, but you're still positive about some good quality blue chips as being the outperformers? Yeah, of course. I think um, they are defensive and they are undervalued because uh, the two Chinese companies actually are being on the sanction list. So they are oversold uh, in the past uh, two years. So they are normalizing, I think, right now, and people actually have nowhere to go in Hong Kong. And HSBC actually, I think, would also benefit. I think banking stocks in the world actually would be with value soon because of the um, expectations of probably of a soft landing. So I think uh, we probably may still see these uh, freeze to outperform the overall market. But overall, I think uh, the Hong Kong market probably would stabilize. Uh, after last week uh, decline. So we are likely to see some stabilization of the whole market. But this defeat in defensive probably may not uh, uh, hurt too much uh, of the fund uh, rotation because I think uh, people would uh, would be still skeptical about the upside and so they would still uh, stick to those uh, defensive core of the portfolio. And they're not going to switch back into technology at the moment? I think probably they would switch some but not uh, all. I think uh, probably they would uh, have uh, some um, selling pressures because of course those kind of but in the long run, I think uh, they would uh, outperform because they are still under value and they still deliver good dividends. So I think people probably may not be willing to switch off them. What's well, it? Alex, I hope you're right. I really do. I mean, you know, my portfolio of uh, what I consider quality Hong Kong stocks has been such a disappointment this year, along with the rest of the Hong Kong stock market. And, you know, you go for dividend growth and everything. But really, I mean, let's be honest, the Hong Kong stock market is been a big disappointment this year and i think retaining people's interest and keeping their money in hong kong is probably proving quite difficult actually uh this index is called alex want to die index actually because (laughs) because this this index actually has risen by almost 30 i think around 30 percent this year Really? So, so, so people, if it started people, it earlier, it would have yeah, been even better. Yeah, <laughs> people actually are going into those defensive. This is the reputation of uh, a mini bull market within a broad bear market right now. Mm. <laughs> so, so I think they, they, they will still uh, be performing, I think. 
It's um, interesting that the Chinese market overall very, very correlated at the moment uh, to rising U.S. interest rates, isn't it? The more U.S. Uh, more the U.S. bond yields rise um, and Treasury bonds fall, the more the Chinese market seems to fall in tandem with it. So it seems that um, you know Chinese investors are ignoring all the stimulus from uh, China and looking closely at what the Fed is doing. Uh, no, actually, I think uh, they are they are not they are ignoring everything and they are just pessimistic right now. I think just <laughs> miserable <laughs> so, in general. <laughs> yeah, so I think there's the lack of confidence. Uh, so they are ignoring the policies effect. Uh, so um, hopefully we will see some stabilization. Uh, we are seeing some strength in uh, certain counters like a multi. So probably uh, we would we will see some stabilization. Mm. The, the key thing message, Tim, that we're getting though out of the US right now is rates are going to stay higher. They're going to be there for a lot longer than people thought. Uh, and you can really rule out rate cuts for, at all for at least the next six months. And maybe we might not even get them next year at all. So the natural, what they call the neutral rate of, of interest is much higher than what we've been used to. Yeah, um, but let's be honest, interest rates have been artificially low. Uh, for so long, and mm. that's what's fueled uh, the bull run in stocks and private equity, etc. So we're going back to a sort of degree of normalisation on interest rates, but you know that is actually going to stop a lot of uh, uh, investments in um, in high capital goods. I mean, for instance, I mean there will probably be a slowdown in, uh, in say in shipping in people investing in shipping because there is. First of all, there are not many banks who want to lend against that. And also, you know, the cost of borrowing is high. But by the same token, you've got a lot of people, where there's a huge amount of money made uh, in, in the shipping industry over the last few years. And that is sitting there waiting, looking for a home. So there will actually continue to be some investment there. So, you know, it's, uh, it's not all negative. But uh, I, th- I, th- I think for sure that will stop uh, a lot of uh investment it's stopped a lot of consumption people are going to be worried about paying their mortgages and everything so you know high interest rates yes that that's uh it comes for sure it comes with the downside but they did need to go up and what they're going to what companies are going to have to get used to is over the next couple of years as they start refinancing their debt uh there's going to be a shock they're going to have to refinance it at much higher rates that's true and that will probably come as quite a shock to quite a few uh, especially if they're if they're in a market that is uh, going through its own downturn and uh, and their profits are being squeezed. So I mean, I don't know, Alex. I mean, are we going to see a, a squeeze on on the profitability of a lot of these uh, companies that are actually saddled with a big debt burden? Yeah, well, of course. I think uh, even in a big bear market like China and Hong Kong, we can still find a mini bull market. So uh, we are hopefully we can still find a meaningful market in the world as well. So I think that those are with strong balance sheets and strong cash flow. I think they probably may benefit from this high interest rate environment because uh, this is uh, uh, an environment that uh, the, the best actually are eating out uh, the competitions. So mm-hmm. probably we may see more consolidations in many industries. So the outlook for those um, well-managed uh, giants actually would be better, I think. So that's why we probably may see a polarized uh, performance in the world as well. And probably may see some minimum markets to emerge in, in the world as well. So uh, very likely we will not see too much performance in the index. And probably that means that uh, the passive investing method probably may be maybe not too trendy now. So probably we may need stock picking into those best managers uh, and when financially good companies. 
I mean, we're seeing that in the S&P 500, aren't we? It's run out of steam, really, the last three weeks or so. It's been down every week. And, and I'm wondering if even maybe this summer rally that we've seen is, is really just one big bull trap and that, um, you know, we're going to start to see now the, the real impact of Fed rate hikes. I think we probably have already seen the peak. And if you look at the Russell 2000, actually, that is even worse. So I think uh, people are now... Uh, more um, the, uh, picky in their stocks. So very likely we will see uh, individual companies to perform better. Uh, and probably may, we will still, still see some selling pressures on tax because uh, they are more uh, correlated to the long bond yield. And, and very likely we may see the bond to remain weak. And so uh, that's why uh, we are probably missing underperformance of those uh, second tier uh, tax stocks. But I think uh, in the long run, uh, high interest rates actually would be a good environment for those uh, well-managed companies. So they probably may have uh, better prospects because of their financial positions. And also, uh, we are in the AI era. So uh, investment in, in AI actually will take a lot of capital. So if you want to manage your balance sheets and without too much uh, bullets, actually, you may not be able to invest in the AI. And so those companies which have the ability actually may, may outperform in the long run. Okay, well, great to hear your thoughts. Thank you both very much for coming in and have a good week. That was Alex Wong, Director of Alex KY Wong Asset Management, Tim Huxley, who's the Chairman of Mandarin Shipping. I'm joined now by China specialist and author Mark O'Neill. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Now, a lot of focus at the moment on electric vehicles, isn't there? And we've got uh, Valdis Dombrovskis, who is the European Union Trade Commissioner uh, in China at the moment for a four-day trip, saying that uh, the relationship, the trade relationship between the EU and the US, uh, the EU and China is very imbalanced, is complaining about the 400 billion euro trade deficit. And says China must protect itself from, uh, the EU must protect itself from China abuse. So what do you make of all of this? Well, uh, the situation with electric vehicles is something we've never encountered before in the automobile sector because, you know, since China opened up in 1980, uh, its uh, automotives were very, very behind those in the West. So she allowed foreign automakers to set up joint ventures always had to be 50-50 partnerships with Chinese companies. And gradually, the standard of Chinese cars improved. But what's happened in the last five years is that China has invested very heavily in electric vehicles. And for the first time, China is the world leader in electric vehicles. Now, as you know, in, in the EU, from 2035, you won't be able to buy a car using uh, petrol you'll have to buy an electric car. So all the cars in the future will be electric vehicles. Mm. So the European car makers are facing a situation where they are behind China in what's going to be the only kind of car that you can sell. Now, as you know, within the EU, the auto industry is absolutely critical. I think it employs 13 million people, about 7% of EU GDP. So it's an industry that... Uh, Europe absolutely has to protect. But at the moment, uh, Chinese electric cars in Europe are cheaper, better quality and more attractive than European ones. So that's the dilemma faced by EU now. 
And why is that? Why? Because, you know, Europe has some very, very high quality manufacturers, doesn't it? There's the world's leading auto manufacturers. Some of them are there. Have they just completely missed the boat? Did they not do this early enough? Or why is it that they're losing out? No, I, I, I think the, the, the European homemakers also invested heavily in electric cars. But China has the benefit of having um, this uh, enormous uh, government backing for developing electric cars. Billions of yuan has been invested in this, and the Chinese government has given big subsidies to consumers to buy electric vehicles. So last year, for the first time, BYD cars, the BYD car became the most popular car in China, overtaking Volkswagen car. So it's it's... We have to say the hard work of Chinese makers, the very strong support of the government to the makers and to consumers. And this has enabled China to move ahead of Europe. So um, uh, in the middle of September, the um, European Union Commissioner Ursula von Leyen announced that there will be investigation into whether the EVs imported from China to Europe were unfairly subsidized. So this is a very critical matter. So what you're, from what you're saying, um, the, the Chinese EV manufacturers and the consumers were subsidised by, by the Chinese government. I mean, taking out the issue of whether it's fair or not, it, it's a fact that it, it was done. Uh, uh, yes, but uh, in, in, in Europe also, the, government, um, the governments encourage people to, uh, for instance, buy solar panels and uh, to buy uh, EU vehicles, uh, EV vehicles. So, yes, there are subsidies, but China's not the only one providing them. Mm. I think what the Europeans do is they subsidise the purchasers, don't they? They they don't subsidise their companies directly, whereas China's doing both. It's subsidising the buyers, the consumer, and it's subsidising, providing direct subsidies to the companies as well. Yes, but... When after the EU announced this investigation, the Ministry of Commerce in China said, well, uh, first of all, it said it's naked protectionism. And secondly, it said how much the EU makers have benefited from their access to the Chinese market. And this is completely true, especially the three big uh, German automakers, that's Volkswagen, BMW and Mercedes, they have uh, between them a 20% share of the uh, uh, Chinese car market. Mm. Uh, Volkswagen sells more cars in China than it does in Germany. Mm. And uh, they've reaped enormous profits from their investments in China. So this announcement of the investigation has really put the German makers in a very awkward position. Because obviously the drive for it didn't come from them, it came from the French makers, that's Peugeot and Renault, which have almost no operations in China and almost no sales, so they have nothing to lose. So they are the ones pressing the EU to open this investigation. And they also spoke about the solar panels. Uh, Maybe you remember about 10 years ago, China Mm -hmm. flooded Europe with cheap solar panels. And the EU governments subsidized purchases of them, as you mentioned, and the European solar panel industry was wiped out. Mm, yep. And they're afraid of this happening to the auto industry as well. 
Now, I, I, of course, the auto industry is much bigger and much more important than the solar panel industry before, but that was a strong argument used by the French automakers. So the EU needs to be a bit careful here then, because if China were to retaliate, that's going to be very damaging to those German companies that, that you mentioned. Well, yes. Uh, I mean, China can retaliate in lots of ways. It can put import tariffs on uh, uh, cars imported from Europe. Now, BMW and Mercedes uh, sell mostly the, the very top premium quality cars to chi wealthy Chinese, and most of their, them are imported. Mm. So China could put a very uh, heavy tariff on that. She could penalize the uh, German automakers within China in, in many different ways. And also, China has uh, almost a monopoly on lithium, lithium batteries, which are essential for the production of EVs. Now, the, Europe is trying very hard to diversify its sources of lithium and lithium batteries. But at the moment, China is, is the dominant supplier. Um, so uh, that gives also China a lot of leverage over the European automakers. So mm. CATL, which is the biggest uh, builder of electric car batteries, is building an enormous factory in Hungary, which is going to, which is going to supply Mercedes, BMW, and Volkswagen and other European makers. So you see the situation is extremely complicated. Mm. And, and the problem is that the European then manufacturers and the US manufacturers, with the notable exception of Tesla, don't develop their own batteries. Which Tesla does. It's, it's, it's got its own uh, factory for, for producing batteries for its own cars, but the other European US manufacturers don't do that. No, that, that's correct. So uh, I mean, the European makers are rushing to to catch up and are trying to source lithium and lithium batteries from non-Chinese suppliers. But all this is going to take time. Now, now we know that um, Chinese uh, electric vehicles are cheaper um, because of the, the cutthroat competition they have on the, on the mainland. But are they better as well? Is the technology better than US and European manufacturers? Well... Uh, my German friends tell me that the key moment came in March. There was the Shanghai Auto Show and the European executives came. And at this auto show, they, they drove the Chinese electric vehicles and they were very shocked that uh, uh, how good they were. And um, uh, let, let's not say they're better than the Europe, all the European ones, but they're competitive in some aspects. Mm -hmm. And apparently this was really a wake-up call to the, uh, especially the German companies, that uh, they've got to uh, accelerate their uh, investment in EVs. And how has this come about then? How is the Chinese technology better? Is that because of the support from the government or has it come from their joint ventures with, with overseas companies? How have they managed to get this technology and develop it so quickly and so well? Well, yeah, government subsidies are one factor, but of course we have to um, salute the work of Chinese engineers and, and, and uh, the people who work in, in BYD and the other uh, producers. They've worked very hard. They've uh, improved the quality of their goods. And this is the view of the Ministry of Commerce. They say this investigation is a retaliation for the hard work and the success 
of the Chinese EV makers. Mm. So what's to be done? Valdis Dombrovskis, the European Union Trade Commissioner, is in China. He says he wants to protect the EU from what he calls China abuse. He Basically, he wants China to buy more EU goods and products, doesn't he? That's what he really wants, to bring down this enormous um, trade deficit. He's also complaining about uh, free and fair global trade. He emphasises the word fair. He says that's the key word here. But, but what's to be done if we're going to bring down uh, for the EU to bring down this 400 billion euro trade deficit, which is absolutely enormous. Well, uh, I mean, the uh, European Chamber of Commerce in China every year produces very, very long position papers and statements about what China could do to open its market and increase purchases of European goods and services. So if you read those position papers, then there are very there are many specific suggestions of how you do this, and that, of course, would bring down the deficit. But I'm afraid in the China of today, I'm, I'm rather sceptical that this is going to happen because the, the Chinese government has basically stri- changed its strategy. I mean, previously they regarded trade with EU um, and the USA as a sort of very important factor. Relations with the EU and, and the US were very important and must be improved. But I think now the government is looking more at uh, self-reliance and uh, standing up for itself. And uh, the, the, the era of the, the, Deng, the Deng period has passed. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's going to be very hard to resolve this issue of the, of the trade deficit. This is going to be maybe a topic for one of your books soon. Uh, yes. It could uh, be. How, uh, how many books have you written now, by the way? Uh, Fifteen. 15. <laughs> all, all about China? Um, China, Taiwan, Macau, uh, Hong Kong. Yeah. Mm. And, and what's, the, what's the latest one? Well, the latest one is about a man called Zhou Youguang. He is the man who invented the pinyin system for romanizing Chinese characters. Now, um, when the communists took power in 1949, the literacy rate in China was about 20%. And the main reason for this is that, uh, as you know, learning characters takes a long time and uh, is very difficult. So you have to find a way to, for people to learn the characters uh, more quickly. So he was in uh, this body in Beijing called the Chinese Character Reform Commission, and he devised this system of pinyin, which is, uses Roman letters, and all the characters have a pinyin equivalent. So this started in 1958, and now when Chinese primary school students go, go to school, they don't learn the characters. They first learn the pinyin, mm-hmm. and then they learn the characters. So Professor Zhou said that thanks to his system, one billion Chinese have learned, learned how to read characters, read and write characters. Mm-hmm. One billion. One billion. Wow. So, there is no achievement in human history by any scholar or linguistics expert which is comparable to that. Now, Mr. Zhou had an astonishing life. He lived to the age of 111. So whilst discovering pinyin and, 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 and popularizing pinyin was his most significant achievement, uh, he did a lot of other things. Uh, he was a banker. Uh, in in uh, London, New York, 
During World War II, he was a, a very high official in the Agriculture Bureau of the Ministry of Economic Affairs, and he helped to guarantee the supply of food and clothing for the Chinese army and, and, and the people under control of the nationalist government. And he wrote 49 books, um, many of them after he retired at the age of 91. In fact, he didn't retire at all. He, <laughs> he became even more productive after he retired. And many of these books address the issues of history and politics within China, which are more or less taboo now. People right. don't dare to write about them. But he wrote about them. So he wrote about the Soviet Union, he wrote about Chairman Mao, he wrote about the damage the Soviet Union did to China, the, the, the damage of the Cultural Revolution, of the Great Famine. I mean, he wrote on many, many topics. And, of course, some of the books couldn't be published in China. They were published here or in Taiwan. Mm. Oh. Okay, so that's the new book, The Man Who Made China, A Literate Nation, a biography of Zhou Yugang, the father of Pinyin, and that's in the bookshops in mid-October. That's China specialist and author Mark O'Neill. Thank you very much. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more details about some of the topics I've been talking about today, along with information on other headlines and market moves on my daily newsletter. Take a look at Peter Lewis, moneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back with another show tomorrow. Joining me then will be David Roche, President and Global Strategist at Independent Strategy, Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster Barry Wood. See you tomorrow. Money Talk 